Well, there is an activity that we do more times in a week than anything else. Can you imagine what that is? 20 to 25 times. This is the interactive part, by the way. This is your only chance to get to speak because I got the next 30 minutes or so. So uh, eat. There we go. Obviously, right? It is a big deal. Food is everywhere. And often we make it the primary focus of our vacations. You travel almost anywhere in the world, despite, in, in, with the exception perhaps of uh, developing countries. We have a team in El Salvador this morning that uh, landed there safely yesterday. And uh, we'll probably be having a lunch meal somewhere uh, out and it be a new experience for them. But uh, if you go to any kind of resort destinations, they'll have a dining out guide. Um, you know, whatever it is, just recently, Tina and I celebrated our 20th anniversary, September 3rd. I know it's hard to believe that she's, well, this is all for Tina because she's uh, put up with me that long. But uh, we went to Canmore, you know, pretty exotic and uh, um, looked up on our on uh, websites, you know, Urban Spoon and all these and just got ideas about where to go eat. And we tried a bunch of different places, some we already had tried before. But food is kind of everywhere. Actually, on our honeymoon, we went on a cruise. And uh, that was a great experience because if you've ever been on a cruise, you know that there is food everywhere as much as you want, 24 hours a day pretty much. And uh, they had gathered all of the honeymooners together and just kind of did a little presentation because they knew there would be so many couples uh, on this this cruise. And they said that the average weight gain on a seven-week cruise is 20 pounds. That just is almost nauseating, isn't it? But food is the subject of countless books, right? Just go to a library and there's food everywhere. Go to a chapter store, there's the whole food section. You can get specific magazines uh, devoted to food and recipes and cooking and all those kind of things. Websites are rampant, TV shows, and even entire TV channels, right? One of my wife's favorite channels is the the Food Network. And after the service, we're going to gather for brunch. We're going to enjoy that. And then by about 5 o'clock this afternoon, we're going to be hungry again. And we're going to be looking in the fridge for something to eat. But what if I said you could be hungry no more? What does that mean? We are in a series of messages from the Gospel of John under this banner we've called Taking Jesus Seriously. And this isn't an exhaustive, you know, verse-by-verse study of the entire Gospel of John. That might take years, but really kind of a chapter-by-chapter study where we might scan an entire chapter from about 34,000 feet and then swoop down on a few verses or a specific event and uh, take a look at some greater detail at some of those key verses or event in the life of Jesus. It's good to remind ourselves as we journey through this study of why John wrote this gospel in the first place because I think it really forms the underlying purpose of every message that we'll share because it's the reason we're studying it as well. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we read John's own words, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book, but these are written, the ones that were recorded, so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, 
That's the whole point of the book. That you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his great name. And this morning, we approach chapter 6. And I invite you to take your Bibles and follow along with me. We chose not to read the scriptures this morning, or as we've been doing for the most part of this series, show a clip from the visual Bible, which is literally word for word from the Bible. Because the section that we're going to look at this morning is quite long. I wasn't quite sure exactly how this was all going to unfold as we were planning the service together. But chapter 6 clearly has some very hard teachings. And uh, I'm just going to avoid those altogether, actually. I'm just kidding. We'll touch on some of them. But even his disciples thought so, because in verse 60, uh, it says that many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching who can accept it. So what's so hard about it? Well, let's look at this. Just an overview of John 6 before we continue on, because even though we won't look at the first uh, 24 verses or so, they do provide the context for uh, the event that we will look at. And really, this chapter just involves some more miracles. And again, why were they written? We've just heard that, so that we might believe, that we might understand the divine nature and the power of Jesus Christ. And in the beginning of John chapter 6, we have the account of the feeding of the 5,000. And I always say 5,000 plus, because uh, the scriptures say there was 5,000 men. We don't know how many women there were or how many children there were. But if you can imagine, perhaps most of the men were married and maybe they each had two children. You're looking at upwards of 20,000 people. This was a massive crowd of people. Of course, we know the story of the little boy that they find then as this encounter between Jesus and disciples about how are we going to feed them. These people are hungry. It's brunch time. They got five loaves and two fish from this little boy. You know, just as I read that, and I, you know, you can get in depth and you can hear all sorts of explanations for some of this, but I choose to believe to just take things as face value because that's the way they're written and intended for us to be written. This is an absolutely incredible miracle of God. When he takes those few bread, and you just read the little nuances there, that, that as much as they wanted, this wasn't everybody just taking, oh, we only got five loaves, let's just take a little break, a little break off. They, they took as much as they wanted. And then when they had all had enough to eat, they were satisfied. They weren't hungry anymore. They gathered the leftover pieces, and they still filled 12 baskets full, even certainly more than what they started with. Then it moves from the feeding of the 5,000 plus, Jesus then walking on water. And this was on on the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee. And the disciples had rowed out. They might have already been five or six kilometers out into this lake as they were trying to head to the the other side. It was a shortcut uh, rather than walking along the shore. So they rowed out five or six kilometers. A storm rolls through. The waters grow rough and they're having difficulty making their way across. And suddenly they see Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. Again, a a supernatural uh, miracle of God that he even shows that he has power over creation. What's interesting too, as I read that again, you know, you see these little things that just kind of jump out at you. But it says that he gets into the boat and immediately the boat reaches the shore where they were heading. I don't know how that happened. 
But that's part of the miracle as well. Jesus walking, they're halfway across the lake, and suddenly, immediately, they're on the other side where they were heading in the, in the first place. Both of these miracles set the stage for the encounter that Jesus has with the crowd. And so we're going to begin looking at verse 25, where we're going to descend and have this closer look. And I want to just simply look at it this way. We're going to look at three questions that the crowd asks Jesus, and then one request that they make of Jesus. The first question they ask is, when did you get here? Verse 25. When did you get here? So what we have beginning here in verse 25 is an encounter between Jesus and the crowd that he had fed the day before. This particular encounter takes place in the synagogue of Capernaum. The crowd, earlier in the day, had been waiting at the site of the miraculous feeding. And when they realized that Jesus wasn't coming back to that place the next day, they decided that they would go looking for him. So they traveled to Capernaum. And in verse 25, we read, They found him on the other side of the lake and asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? When did you get here? And it's a strange question when you really think about it, because I think what was really burning in their hearts was, How did you get here? We were watching for you. We, we saw the boat leave last night with the disciples, and you weren't in it. And we had this fantastic day, Jesus, yesterday. Remember that? We still can't get over how you fed uh, all of those people with that boy's small lunch. And, 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 and so, what, you know, we wake up this morning, and we said to each other, let's go see if we can find him. And we did. So, so uh, like, when did you get here? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. And so Jesus gets right to the heart of the issue. He doesn't actually answer their question, although we know how he got there because we have the text. He walked across the lake. But since they started the conversation, Jesus gets right to it. He basically says to them, let's be honest. You didn't come because of the miracle. You came because I fed you. I'd be kind of curious to actually see how the visual Bible presented this exchange because I don't think we should see this as some kind of polite conversation. You know, that, you know, you're like at a dinner party and, I don't know, so well, when did you get here? When did you get into town? Oh, I, you know, well, late last night, you know, after the disciples left, I, I just kind of walked out on the water and came. It was none of that. This wasn't kind of the kind and meek Jesus again. Because the word that he used for fed or ate was used to describe animals chomping on their food. It would almost be like our equivalent today of saying, you know, you guys really pigged out last night. You really stuffed your face. And so basically Jesus accuses them of only now coming to find him the next day because they wanted another meal. They had seen the miracle, but they didn't see the significance. Now, we look at an encounter like this, and we might be tempted to think that we would never do the same thing. Oh, no, not us, right? They came to Jesus only because of what they got. They were seeking Jesus for material gain. In other words, it was an issue of motives. 
They were only concerned about the physical and the material things, things that can't ultimately satisfy the true longing of the heart. The void in the human heart can only be filled spiritually. So Jesus says, spend your energy or work at seeking the eternal life. The miraculous signs pointed to Jesus' divine nature and identity as the true Messiah. But the crowd entirely missed it. They were focused on their needs and what they could get from Jesus rather than on the person of Jesus. And when you stop and think about it, isn't that true of us sometimes? We too tend to focus on self. We focus on material things. We focus on what Jesus can do for us rather than focusing on what he already has done for us. And we miss what Jesus has for us. You see, the love of possessions obscures our awareness of God and ultimately limits our growth. And don't get me wrong, things you know, aren't wrong in and of themselves. But what is wrong is seeking after these things and not seeking after God. Or at the very least, seeking things more than God. And so this raises, I think, a whole bunch of other questions for us. Among them, simply, why are you here? Why are we here? Now, there's two aspects to this question. Certainly, one is the big question, right? The, the question of ultimate existence. Why do I exist? What on earth am I here for? To work for food that spoils? It's a great line that Jesus uses, Right? Is that all we're about? Get up tomorrow morning, go to work so we can make a buck, so that we can have some food on the table, so that we can go to sleep, wake up the next day, and repeat endlessly and endlessly. And in this small verse, Jesus is addressing the very purpose of life. It's amazing, isn't it? The Westminster Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? What is the ultimate goal or purpose of man? And then answers the question, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Friends, you're looking for meaning in life and purpose and direction? That's it. That's how we go through life. We exist in all that we do in all of the trades and professions and all the things that we might do that keep us busy during the rest of the week, the goal of even all of that is that we might glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so why are you here? Big picture? Smaller question. Smaller picture. Even this morning, why are we here? Now, there might be several good answers that we have, but if we're primarily focusing on what we might receive out of coming to gather like this in a, in, a, in a worship experience, or how we might benefit, then we're really missing the point of worship as well, right? Because the whole point of our singing is to declare God's praises, to ascribe worth to God. That's what it means to worship. And so do we spend our lives seeking things or do we seek God? Which brings us to the second question. Verse 28. What should we do? What should we do? Verse 28, they replied, 
we want to perform good or God's works too. So what should we do? What should we do? It's a question that lots of people ask. What must I do? And in verse 27, Jesus told them to work for the food that endures to eternal life. In other words, don't spend your life just, you know, chasing after that food that's going to perish and spoil. But, but spend your time looking for the food that endures to eternal life. But they un- misunderstand that. And so they ask God about the works that he requires. Or they ask Jesus about the works required by God. They really want to know What do they have to do to find salvation? That's the question. He's talking about eternal life. He puts in working there. They kind of misunderstand it. They misconstrue it. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, how much energy do I need to expend in order to be accepted by God? Do I maybe just need to pray more? Or maybe uh, more church attendance? Or or maybe more random acts of kindness? kindness? What should I do, Jesus? Just tell us. And so he does. And his answer completely blows apart the idea that there's anything that they can do to find salvation. Because in verse 29, Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. This is the only work God wants for you. Believe in the one that he has sent. And so what should we do? Jesus simply answers that The work that God requires is that people would believe in the Messiah. But that seems to be too too good to be true. Just believe? That's all you're telling me? That's all I need to do to inherit eternal life? I mean, we live in a reward-based society. Everything I do, I get something in return. And so maybe there's even a small part of us that feels, you know, almost flattered when we, we do something for God. We might even think that we're entitled to a reward. But listen, think about it this way. If there was something or anything that we could do, if we could somehow earn our salvation, we would then succeed ultimately in bringing God into the humbling position of owing us. Like somehow now God is indebted to us for the good things that we do. God, I did this for you. And now you owe me big time. But God's way is this. Believe in the one he has sent. Believe in the one he has sent. So it's not at all what we can do for God, but rather what God has already done for us. Our work, as Jesus puts it in these these words, is to believe it. In other words, we give up trying to please him by our own efforts, and instead we commit ourselves into the hands of Jesus. So another question that I would ask is what do we then trust in other than Jesus? What do we trust in other than Jesus? You know, maybe it's our baptism. Maybe it's our history of church attendance. Maybe we see ourselves as a good person who does good things. You know, we we paid it forward one time. We paid for the guy's coffee and Tim Horton's lying behind us one time. Maybe we donate it to worthwhile causes. All of those are good things. There's nothing wrong with those. But that's not what God is after. What should we do? What should we do? Well, nothing. (laughs) Except believe. Except believe. 
Now stay with me on this for just a moment because we're talking about believing faith. What does it mean to come to faith in Jesus? And if you still have your Bibles open in John chapter um, 6, there's a verse 44. This is what Jesus says. For no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me. Did you catch that? For no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me. And this verse echoes verse 37 where he said, those the Father has given to me will come to me. In other words, God has to move in the inner heart of a person before he or she can even see the things of God. So the very act of faith is a work of God. Faith is a gift from God. Romans 12, 3 says that faith comes from God. And it's really a, a, almost a great mystery, right? Because God starts this work in us, but then somehow doesn't exclude our response. God gives us faith and then says, now exercise that faith to believe. Right? That's the work. But God starts the work. I think back to the day that even though I grew up in church and Sunday school, I had heard probably countless messages and stories of the Bible until one day at what is now Rexall Place, Northlands Coliseum, I think uh, it was even back in the days, Billy Graham uh, mission in town sat through the whole week's worth of messages, gospel messages, after time, after time, after time, and they were just exactly like all the other ones I heard until the very last night. I can't explain it, but there was a tug in my heart that was absolutely undeniable. It was irresistible. And I remember turning to my dad and just saying, I'm going. And I was on the end aisle, and I stood up, and I walked down those aisles, and I gave my life right there that night to Jesus Christ, and it changed my life forever. Did things still go wonky at times? Sure. I was in junior high. High school and university was rough. But here I am by the grace of God because of the work that he started in me. So God gives us faith and we just exercise that faith to believe. Now, there's so much more. I'm probably opened a huge can of worms on that. So I'm just going to move to the third question. What can you do? What can you do? Basically, the crowd asked Jesus, so Jesus, you want us to believe? Verse 30, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? Or as the New International Version puts it, what will you do? Now, I, I, see, I, I find humor in these things sometimes because I just think that's a pretty incredibly dumb question given the fact of what they have already seen. Think back to verse 26 when Jesus said, you've already seen the miraculous signs. I mean, what had they seen? John chapter 2, Jesus changing water into wine at the wedding at Cana. His healing of the royal official's son in chapter 4. His healing of the cripple of 38 years from John chapter 5, the subject of Pastor Ken's message last week. His feeding of the 5,000 plus. His walking on the water. And in spite of all of these miracles, they still ask well, what will you give? What can you do? In other words, if I can see it, I will believe in you. I, 
I just need a little more evidence, a little more evidence than all those miracles. Then I will believe in you. If God will only do something, then I will believe. Can I just say that I think that in most instances, it's never a lack of evidence that keeps people from Jesus. It's simply a lack of heart that keeps them from following Jesus. Having the courage to respond to that drawing of the Spirit to God and saying yes to Jesus. We hold back. We hold off on that. We've all heard the saying, seeing is believing, which basically means that only physical or concrete evidence is going to be convincing, right? So show me and I will believe in you. That's what what the crowd was asking Jesus, even though they had already seen all these miracles. But if we turn that around and look at it as believing is seeing, which simply means that when we put our faith in Jesus, then we see him for who he really is. Then we come to grips with what he has done for us. You see, the crowd wanted to see a manna sign. Verse 31, they said, After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say, Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so maybe if Jesus gave them bread to eat, you know, every day for the next 40 years, as happened in the wilderness experience, well, then they would believe. Because that would be a miracle. So Jesus corrects them. Ah, you know what, guys? It wasn't Moses that gave you the bread, actually. It was God. God gave you that bread. And listen carefully to what he then says, verse 32. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one, or he's talking about a person here, is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That's the message of Christmas. That's the incarnation. That's what we discovered in John chapter 1. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And in referring to the true bread of God, Jesus was referring to something that nourishes people spiritually and eternally. And this was infinitely superior to the manna given to Israel when they wandered in the wilderness. That manna was only able to meet the temporal, physical needs that the people had. But the bread from heaven that Jesus refers to now, he says, it's life-giving and it's spiritually satisfying. It nourishes the soul and it's life-transforming. Well, this sounds pretty fantastic to the crowd. And so they make this final request. Verse 34. Give us that bread every day. That's the bread we want every day. Verse 34. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Does that sound familiar? Other than the fact that I just said it three times? In John chapter 4. When Jesus was meeting with the woman at the well, and he says to her, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. 
Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Give me this water. It sounds fantastic. Why? Because the woman responded in a purely physical way, just the way the crowd in John 6 does. This bread sounds fantastic. It gives life to the world. I mean, who wouldn't want that? And Jesus must be wondering, how dense can you be? So he responds with the first of the seven I am statements that we're going to discover throughout John's gospel. Verse 35, and this is the key verse this morning. Jesus declares loud and clear because they weren't getting the references to him already about being the true bread of heaven. And he says, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. And whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. And then he makes reference to the water again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. There's so much in there, but let me just try to condense it to this. Jesus is simply saying this. I am the food. I am the sustenance of spiritual life. I provide nourishment, and I alone can satisfy the deep spiritual longings of the soul. So he's taking an earthly, physical thing, bread, and applying them spiritually to his life, water. And he says, whoever comes to me will be hungry no more. Come to me and you will be hungry no no more. That is, the spiritual longing to know God will be satisfied. That peace in our lives that we can't always explain, that, that void in our lives that we try to fill with all sorts of other things and it's never satisfied, suddenly is satisfied when we come to Jesus because he's the bread of life. You know what? In so many ways, because this chapter goes on and on, and I encourage you to read it, and at times your eyes are going to get big and go, what in the world did he ever mean there? But I hope that what you just learned this morning will help you understand the rest of the chapter. I don't feel like I've maybe even done justice to these verses, and there's so much more. But in closing, I do want to talk real quickly about what it means to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Because this is important. This is what the chap this is what the book is about. This is what the message is about. What does it mean to put our faith in Jesus Christ? It's not a leap into the darkness. It's not even a matter of understanding or kind of having knowledge. Because you might say, well, I know there is a God. I know that Jesus is the Son of God. I know that he died and rose again. But knowing that, just kind of giving mental assent to these truths, that in itself won't save you. Because the Bible talks about becoming a follower of Jesus, becoming a Christian in a number of ways. And here in in these verses, Jesus repeatedly talks about coming to him. It's an invitation. Come to me. Verse 37, verse 44, verse 45, and verse 65. Listen. Verse 37, however, those the Father has given to me will come to me, and I will never reject them. I'll never turn them away. 
Verse 44, for no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me. Verse 45, everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. Verse 65, this is why I said that people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. And so coming to Jesus implies that you're coming away from something. And so what happens is that God initiates or starts this work in our hearts. And when we realize the emptiness of our spiritual experience, and we realize that we need more, that there's more to life, and we need sustenance and nourishment, and somehow just going to church or attending church doesn't always seem to cut it. And Jesus invites us and says, come away from the emptiness because I am the bread of life and I will fill you and I will satisfy you and you will be hungry no more. And there's a parallel phrase in verse 35, whoever believes in me. So coming, believing, and further on in John 6, listening, and even eating. Now that'll freak you out because you're like, if you read that literally, you're like, what is he talking about? Eating my body and drinking my blood. I mean, ugh. Right? You gotta understand that. It doesn't mean it literally. Because Jesus intended it to have spiritual meaning. But all of these words explain the same experience. So I just want to ask you in closing. Hunger no more? Are you hungry? Have you come to Jesus? Have you come to Jesus? If not, why not? What's holding you back? Love to talk about that. Pastor Ken, Pastor Ed, myself, elders, we'd love to talk to you about that. What does it mean to come to Jesus? And if you have come to Jesus, if the answer to that is yes, then I hope that we realize, even from these verses, that behind our willing decision to come and believe there's this mysterious, invisible work of the Father who all along was drawing us to Christ. And so, friends, thank Him for what He has done because He has done everything. He died for our sins. That work is finished. And so it is fitting that we gather around this table of remembrance this morning for those who have said yes to Jesus and they've repented and turned away from the emptiness. And they've come to him in faith. This is a time for us to remember and reflect on the finished work of Jesus. And when we think of all that he has done for us, it should fill our hearts with gratitude and joy. Because as we're going to sing in a moment, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. He doesn't owe me anything. All to him I owe.